Well, friends, we are starting a brand new series the Sunday after Easter. And as we get into this series, we're going to see different encounters that Jesus has after his resurrection. Now, this is so important because, of course, we have the three years of Jesus' public ministry that we can read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And yet, there were, over the course of 40 days, encounters that Jesus had with over 500 people. And as we get into this sermon series, we're going to see how every single one of these encounters that Jesus has with these different individuals is unique. How he appears to Mary is different than how he appears to Thomas, different than how he appears to the disciples in the upper room, different than how he appears to Peter, different than how he appears to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And it's a great reminder that Jesus, whose scripture says is alive and well today, he is risen, he is risen indeed, he longs to meet with you in a unique and personal way, not in a formulaic way. And as we hear these stories, as we study God's word, as we encounter Jesus who encountered them in the first century, we're going to have a, a greater view of who God is, a greater view of these disciples, but also we're going to have a greater view of ourselves and also a greater view of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, let me just say, as we get into this sermon series uh, just three quick things that are essential for us to understand foundationally. First and foremost, that the faith that is the centerpiece of Christianity is not faith in a principle. It's not faith in a set of teachings. It is faith in a person. In each of these encounters, Jesus does not come and say, here's what I want you to know. Rather, he says, this is who I am. The hallmark of our faith isn't a set of creeds. It's on a list of do's and don'ts. It's not uh, basic instructions before leaving earth. But in actual fact, it is a person. And we're going to see that thread run through every single one of these encounters. But not only is that faith in a person, the person being Jesus, it's maybe better said that it is faith into Jesus. You know, the Greek word for belief and faith is the word pistis. And every time that that word is used in the Greek, it follows with the preposition ace, E-I-S. And that preposition means literally into. And it gives the word picture that your life, not just your mind, not just your actions, uh, the sum totality of who you are has been placed into something. And this imagery is, is so important for us to catch because it can be tempting to think that faith in Jesus is just a mental assent, a mental belief in who Jesus is. But in actual fact, we're going to see throughout this sermon series a thread that will run throughout all of it that each of these individuals, ultimately, they place everything into Jesus. They place their, their hopes, their fears, their doubts, their joys, their emotions, their past, their present, their future into Jesus. You've heard me use the illustration before. Back in the uh, early 1900s, there was a, a famous, famous tightrope walker named the Great Blondine. And he would uh, travel the world and do his tightrope act. And one of those years, he made his way to upstate New York. 
and he stretched out this massive, massive tightrope across, of all things, Niagara Falls. And he would, day after day, come out and he would walk back and forth. And over the days and weeks, more and more people would hear about it. The newspapers would show up and people would begin to crowd around both sides and see the great Blondine make his way across. And it seemed like each day he would up the ante. He would get uh, stronger and stronger. Uh, He would get bolder and bolder. In, In many ways, plain to the crowd as he did it. And one famous day, he gets out and he brings a wheelbarrow. And he walks across. Imagine that. I mean, not only walking across, but with the single front tire of a wheelbarrow. He's, he's walking across Niagara Falls and he somehow gets around it and comes back. People are losing their minds. People are, are cheering. People are just going, you know, off the Richter scale. And then he says this. He says, how many of you, show of hands, how many of you believe that I could put somebody in the wheelbarrow and take them across and bring them back to safety. And everybody's hands raised and people are like, we believe, we believe. And he says, who's first to get in the wheelbarrow? And it was silence. Not one person had the faith to get into the wheelbarrow. Though everybody from afar could say, I believe, I believe you can do it. Nobody was willing to put their life into the great Blondine's hands. There are many people who perhaps believe in Jesus. Many people today who are watching this, who perhaps up until this moment have seen Jesus as just someone to to ascribe a belief towards, to to believe in his teachings, to perhaps uh, uh, live and love like, to imitate. But in actual fact, the through line through all of these stories, is that there's this invitation that Jesus gives, not just to them, but to all of us, to place our very lives into Jesus. And then finally, this through line that happens throughout all of these encounters is that in many ways, faith can only happen, can only occur, can only exist when it comes from the outside in. Every single one of these stories is about a follower of Jesus who has spent three years hearing his teaching, seeing the miracles. They saw water turned into wine, uh, bread and fish multiplied to feed the thousands. They saw sight given to the blind, people healed of leprosy, the lame able to walk, they saw Lazarus raised from the dead. And yet even after his death, every single one of them needed something else for their lives to truly be transformed. They needed a post-resurrected Jesus to encounter them, to come to them, to draw them deeper into a relationship. You see, this is absolutely crucial. This is absolutely key. Scripture says that no one can come to the Father, God the Father, unless God draws them to himself. We can't generate in our own strength, in our own ability, faith, the level of faith that is required to get into, to put our very lives into the hands of Jesus. We need help. I love uh, in a passage of Scripture in the New Testament, someone says to Jesus, I believe, but help me in my my unbelief. 
There is something that God offers to you and it begins with offering you the ability to even have faith, the ability to even long to draw closer to Jesus. So these through lines, we're gonna see through every single New Testament character. But also it's a reminder that we can't, we can't say that Jesus' life was just his teaching. We can't say that Jesus' life was just about how he lived in love. We can't say that Jesus' life was just about the miracles. We actually have to embrace the fact that Jesus rose from the grave. And that's one of the hardest things, I believe, for some people to grasp, to believe. We might say, you know, I love his teaching. I love how he embraced those on the margins of society. I love how he was humble, how he was gentle in spirit. I love how he was strong. And yet I can't fully grasp that he actually defeated death and rose from the grave. Well, two passages in the scriptures say that it is his resurrection, it is his defeat of death that gives us hope. It is that and only that that unlocks new birth in us. In, in, in fact, in uh, 1 Peter 1, it says this, uh, in God's great mercy... God has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why we're diving in the sermon series, to see how essential these encounters that changed everything were. You see, the encounters that Jesus had with all his disciples before his death, it changed a lot, but it didn't change everything. After his death, burial, and resurrection, then it changed everything. The book of Romans, Romans 10, says that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, then you will be saved. Again, faith isn't a person, Jesus. But it's more than just a mental ascent. It is faith into, it is putting your, your very life, your past, present, and future, everything into Jesus. But also know that you can't do that on yourself, but God comes from the outside in to draw you into that relationship. All right, so let's dive in. If you have your Bibles, we'd love for you to turn to John chapter 20 as we go through these resurrection appearances that Jesus has with each of these uh, followers of Christ. We get to the first one that perhaps you might find, especially if you understand first century culture, is very surprising. You see what's interesting? It says later on in John chapter 20, Verse 30, just to set up the whole series before we get to this first encounter. In verse 30, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of disciples which are not written in this book. But these, these accounts are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you might have life in his name. Now the gospel writer John, scholars have pointed out, only covers the events in Jesus' life. Of course, the three years of ministry and the 40 days of post-resurrection experiences, he only draws from events that transpired over 21 different days. And at the end of all that, he says there were so many more things not written in this book. I just want you to catch this before we get into this whole series that John is an eyewitness account to all of Jesus' public ministry before and after his death. He has this vast, vast, vast pool of stories 
of information, of teaching, of miracles to draw from. And he chooses a small selection, events that happen over 21 different days in that three-year period. And he says, I chose these things out of the many things because in these things you might believe in Jesus the Messiah and that through faith in him you would have new life. And so John is very selective in these stories, very selective in the, the accounts that he's sharing through the power of the Holy Spirit. And remarkably, we get to a woman whom, by the way, in the first century, did you know that women were not consider, uh, considered credible eyewitnesses in the court of law? Again, in the first century, in the Roman world and in the Jewish world, you would never have a woman stand witness in a public trial. And of all the people that John chooses to describe as the first person that sees with her own eyes the resurrected Jesus is a woman. Now, John is not obtuse. He is not uh, unknowing of the world in which he lives in and is writing too. And in no way would he actually write that a woman is a credible witness unless it actually happened. You see, all these details that we're going to uncover over the next few weeks actually reveal to us the level of detail, whom Jesus appears to, show us that the only way that this can actually be true is if it actually, actually, historically happened. Now, Mary... As a woman, we've met her before in the, the life and the ministry of Jesus, just to set this up. In fact, we are first uh, introduced to Mary Magdalene. She is referred to as Mary Magdalene because she comes from a region called Magdala. This is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is not Mary, the sister of Martha. Uh, this is not Mary, the woman who is caught up in human trafficking uh, this is not Mary, the wife of Clopas. A lot of Marys in the New Testament. This is Mary from Magdala. And we see actually the first uh, description of her in Luke chapter 8. She is a woman who formerly had been oppressed by seven different demons. Now, seven in the ancient world, especially in the Jewish culture, meant perfection, Completeness, wholeness. It's not just the number after six and before eight. Uh, it symbolically meant something. To say that she had been possessed by seven different demons was to say that she was completely and perfectly oppressed. She experienced a tremendous amount of overwhelm. You know, that word overwhelm is actually a word that was invented in the 14th century the definition of that word literally means to be buried or drowned by a great weight. And when you hear about this woman who has been buried by, drowned by, the weight of seven different, complete, whole, perfect oppression, these demonic forces, and that that is her backstory. And that Jesus comes to her, this is before the resurrection that we'll get into, and sets her free, comes into her life with such glory 
You've heard me say before the word glory in the, the Hebrew language literally means weightiness, heaviness. In other words, Jesus comes with such weight and such matter and such significance that he displaces the weight of oppression in her life and she is absolutely set free. And she begins after that not only to follow him, not only to learn from him, but it says in Luke chapter 8 that she was one of the few women who was financing the ministry of Jesus Remarkable. It didn't happen in the first century for rabbis to take on women as disciples, as, as students. And here we have Jesus, unlike anyone who had ever come before him, not only had women coming in, but he taught them, he led them, he brought them in. The margins of society pushed them away and he brought them in. And not only that, she helped finance his ministry. You know, Mary uh, from Magdala was one of the women who was at the cross. All the other disciples had fled. You had Mary, the mother of Jesus. You had Mary Magdalene. Mary, the, the wife of Clopas. They are the only ones there. When everybody else is deserted, everybody else is, has turned their back, she remained. And yet after all of that, after Jesus' death, his burial, it's still not enough for her to be completely transformed because we find, as we will pick up here in verse 11 of John 20, she is overwhelmed again, not by demonic forces, but by grief that Jesus is dead. So let me read, if you have those Bibles, John 20, verses 11 through 16. I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version uh, we'll read that section. We'll pick up a little bit afterwards as well as we get through the sermon. It goes as this. First resurrection encounter that changed everything. Verse 11, chapter 20 of John. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. This, my friends, concludes the reading of God's word. And as we say every week, thanks be to God. This remarkable moment. And as we walk with Mary through this encounter that changed everything in her life, knowing that this is a person that she encounters, that ultimately she's gonna place her faith into that person, Jesus, and knowing that that can only happen if Jesus comes to her from the outside to transform her from the inside out. There's three things that I want us to pick up. Three things that perhaps I might say that I can see uh, in Mary's life that are also true for us, that God longs to transform us today, no matter where we live, no matter what our background has been, no matter if we feel overwhelmed or not. And the three things are this, 
that Jesus doesn't exist. Two, this Jesus knows you. And three, this Jesus wants more for you. So first, the main point, that Jesus doesn't exist. Now, I want to emphasize the word that. You see, Mary had a picture of Jesus. And in her mind, that Jesus was a dead Jesus. And she actually, she blows through, you can say it this way, she blows through three different stop signs that tell her, Mary, you've got the wrong view of Jesus. Your view of Jesus that is still dead is the wrong one. The three stop signs that she blows through are this. First, in verse 11, she bent over to look into the tomb. To look into the tomb meant that the tomb was open. That's the first sign that she blew through that Jesus is alive. But it wasn't enough. The second one, there are two angels dressed in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying one at the head and the other at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She blew right through that stop sign where the Jesus that she thought existed wasn't there. There's two angels. They talked to her. And there's further emphasis that her view of Jesus was a dead Jesus because she says this. She responds and says, they have taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they have laid him. Again, her picture of Jesus is a dead Jesus. She doesn't say, I don't know where he's gone. I don't know where he is. She says, I don't know where the body has been laid. And then finally, the third stop sign that she blows through is when Jesus himself encounters her. She mistakes him as a gardener, which we'll come back to at the very end of the sermon how significant that imagery is. And this one whom she thinks is somebody else speaks to her and says, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? She says to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. She still believes Jesus to be dead. And now she's having an encounter with the very alive, the resurrected, the risen Jesus, and she blows through those three stop signs because that Jesus doesn't exist. And we can put Jesus in our mind into a box, and that Jesus doesn't exist. You know, if you think of Jesus as just some great teacher among many teachers around the world, that Jesus doesn't exist. If you think of Jesus simply as one whom we can model our life after because he really lived a good life and perhaps that Jesus is just a model for how we might live and, and, and make a better world, that Jesus doesn't exist. Uh, if you think of Jesus as someone who did all the things but wasn't risen from the grave, that Jesus doesn't exist. If you think of Jesus as just some historical figure, that Jesus does not exist. If you think of Jesus as one who is chasing you from behind, constantly telling you how you've messed up, that Jesus doesn't exist. This Jesus does. 
who has defeated death, who has risen from the grave, who is both spiritual and physical, as we will get into in a couple weeks when we talk about Jesus' encounter with the disciples in the upper room. But this Jesus, which leads me to my second point, this Jesus knows you. You see, he goes to Mary. He knows she's been weeping. He knows her grief. He knows her sorrow. He knows that she has a distorted, a small view of Jesus in that moment, even though she experienced all of his teaching, even though she'd experienced healing, even though she had seen miracles, she had yet to encounter this Jesus, which was the resurrected Jesus, and this Jesus knew her and knew what she needed. And what's so remarkable is we go through every single one of these resurrection encounters that Jesus knows Mary and knows that Mary is different than Thomas and knows that Thomas is different than Peter and knows that Peter is different than the, the disciples in the upper room, which are different than the disciples on the road to Emmaus, which is different than me, which is different than you. And how Jesus approaches Mary is unique to Mary compared to all the other disciples that we will see in the New Testament. And he doesn't do what he does with Peter, with Thomas, with the others. He speaks her name. He says, Mary. And he knows that that's what she needed for her to all of a sudden realize and say, Rabboni, which means teacher. Yeah, I, I want you to catch this here. I want you to catch the order in which Jesus says things and which she says things. And I want you to catch what Jesus doesn't say. He says, Mary, and then she says, teacher. It doesn't say that she says, teacher, I believe. And then he says, ah, Mary, you finally got it. You see, this is another reminder that it is the outside coming in. It is Jesus, the resurrected Christ, who speaks truth into her life and says, Mary. And then all of a sudden, something happens, something shifts. She is transformed and she realizes it's him. That Jesus doesn't exist. The dead Jesus doesn't exist this Jesus does, this Jesus who knows me. And she responds in faith and says, Rabboni, teacher. And I love this because Jesus doesn't say, you know, I, I, want you to, I want you to go away. I want you to think about all the times in which I said I had to go to my death and rise from the grave. And then once you figure it out, then come back to me. And then I'll say, Mary, well done, good and faithful servant. He doesn't say that. He simply speaks into her life. He speaks into the midst of her unbelief. He speaks into her getting the wrong answer to the question that Jesus asked. Remember, Jesus asked the question, who are you looking for? And that question isn't just for Mary. That question is for every single one of us today. And I want you to catch this that Mary got the answer wrong and Jesus still loved her. Mary got the question wrong by saying, 
If you've taken him, show me where you've laid him so I can take his body. She answers the question by saying, I am looking for a dead Jesus. What an invitation that is for us today that when Jesus asks us the question, who are you looking for? We don't have to have the perfect answer. But when we direct that answer in response to him, when we say that, you know, I am looking for peace, I am looking for hope, I am looking for a savior, I'm looking for a Lord, uh, I'm looking for stability, I'm looking for love, whatever it might be, it could be a, uh, an incomplete view of Jesus, but we don't need the fullness of who he is for Jesus to come into our life. That is absolutely key. Again, that's that reminder that faith doesn't well up from within to be perfect for then Jesus to come into our life. No, he comes from outside in and he grows in us a knowledge of who he is. He grows in us a knowledge of the fullness of his magnificence. And that's why we're doing this sermon series because I believe that no matter how long we've been following Jesus, there's still more to Jesus that we can understand, that we can be humbled by, that we can worship, that we can embrace, that we can be transformed by. And as we enter into the sermon series, a great reminder that it takes many different people in our lives who have personal experiences with Jesus to see the fullness, almost like a multifaceted diamond of who he actually is. So he knows Mary. He knows you. And he's going to come into your life in a way that is unique to you. Over all the years of pastoral ministry and in my own life, I've been following Jesus for for 22 years, the way Jesus came into my life was through my college roommate who, who spoke into my life out of love after he knew me for a year and a half. And he says, according to my understanding of scripture, you are not a Christian. Even though you talk about being a Christian, Drew, you are the Lord of your life. You are being the savior of your own life. And until you, Romans 10, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus rose from the grave until you acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior, then you'll be saved. I needed, I needed that truth in love spoken in my life through a college roommate for Jesus to penetrate my religiosity, to penetrate through me living for Jesus, failing a lot of times, feeling guilty wherever I went, trying to be the Lord of my life, trying to save my own life. That's what I needed to, to transform my heart, to embrace, to receive by faith in humility, Jesus, the resurrected Christ. I've talked to people in pastoral counseling who they needed a rational argument for the existence of Christ. And it was through that where they finally came to faith. Some people, they've, they've needed a miraculous physical healing in their life to, to come to faith. Some people have needed a, a, a miraculous uh, setting free of addiction for them to come to faith. For some people, it is instant. For some people, it's over a course of time. Jesus knows you. And because he knows you, he knows exactly what your heart, what your mind needs, even if you don't even know it, to come to you like he came to Mary. But it wasn't just that he knew Mary. He wanted more for Mary. Take a look. This is the section that I haven't yet read, beginning in verse 17. Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. 
Now, it's so interesting here. Jesus says, do not hold on to me. In a sense, you get the picture of, of Mary then embracing Jesus and perhaps oddly saying, do not hold on to me. Which is interesting because he'll say to Thomas, as we're going to uh, explore in a couple weeks, touch me. Feel me, see that I'm alive. But he says to Mary, don't hold on to me. And at first blush, you know, on the surface, this might seem uh, cold. Why would Jesus say to Mary, don't, don't, don't hold on to me? But in the Greek language, it's literally, the word picture is, don't crush me. You're, you're, you're holding on so tight to me. And it wasn't that Jesus got claustrophobic. It wasn't that Jesus was trying to social distance. It was nothing like that. Jesus, in actual fact, he wanted more for Mary. Because he doesn't just say, don't hold on to me. He says, don't hold on to me. Don't crush me. Why? Because, I'll read it again. I have not yet ascended to the Father. What's that all about? You see, in this moment, I want you to catch this. Around the globe... And throughout human history, there was a church. And at that moment, that church had a membership of one. And it was Mary. She was the first person who had embraced, who had received Jesus as a resurrected king, as a resurrected Lord. You see, the church, it's not a building. It's not an hour on Sunday. It is the ecclesia. It is the called out ones. It's not just enough to see his teachings, not just to understand his ministry before his death, but it is to embrace him as our resurrected Lord, to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. She was the first person. And for a moment, however long that was, whether it was minutes or hours, she is the only member of the body of Christ with Christ at the head, Membership of one. And Jesus wants more for her. He knows that she will grow in her faith, that she will be able to live out her faith, that she will practice her faith, that she will have a deeper and richer understanding of her relationship with Jesus if she has that relationship in the context of community. On one hand, he says, I want more for you than just me and you. You're going to hear in a couple of weeks me telling the story about C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien and a friend who, who passed away. But the short of it is this, that C.S. Lewis realized that when his friend died, he actually got less of J.R. Tolkien in his life because there was something about his friend in his life that brought out another aspect of Tolkien. And he says in this great book, The Four Loves, that that that's a picture of heaven, that actually in community, we actually experience more of one another. We experience more of God. Not only does Jesus say to Mary, I want you to go, go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. He says, I want you to be into community. I want you to experience a relationship with me, with others. But it's not just that. He wants more for her. He wants more for her than just community. He wants this. He says, I have to go and ascend to the Father. What does he do from being ascended to the right hand of the Father? Well, we, we'll see in a couple weeks, and we know throughout Scripture, that from the right hand of the Father, Jesus pours out the Spirit of God. In some ways, Jesus is saying to Mary, uh, don't hold on to me because I, I want more for you. I want you to experience community in my name. 
but I also want you to experience what it's like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Scripture says that that spirit is the same spirit that rose Jesus from the grave and it's gonna dwell in you. Mary, don't just hold on to my resurrected body. You'll experience more of me if you let me go. If you let me finish what I started to ascend at the right hand of the Father where I will one day come again to reestablish the new heavens and the new earth, let go of me so that I can pour out my spirit not only to you, but brothers and sisters that you know today, but brothers and sisters until the end of time before I come again. You see, in that moment, Mary had to, had to respond in faith that her view of Jesus had just been transformed from a dead Jesus to an alive Jesus. But he says, I'm much bigger than that. Let me go. Let your mind be expanded, your heart expanded to realize that I'm not just a resurrected Jesus. I need to be an ascended Jesus as well. These remarkable things that happen in Mary's life cause her to go, to run, to be the first missionary of the church. Can you believe that? A woman in the first century who was an outsider, God has brought as close to the inside as you can imagine, first and foremost, first member of the church, first missionary of the church, and she goes running and she announces, as it says in verse 18, she announces to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them all that he had said about these things to her. This was an encounter that changed everything. The encounter was with a person, Jesus Christ, more than principles, but it was a, a person who had been resurrected from the grave that enabled her to put her faith into Jesus. Not just mental ascent, but she she transitioned, she transferred the foundation of her life into this resurrected Lord. It changed everything in her life. And in many ways, the only way that that happened is because Jesus came to her from the outside, met her in the midst of her overwhelm, through his glory transferred all the weight of her weeping, all the weight of her sorrow, displaced it with with the glory of God, the book of Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. God has the ability to do that through Jesus Christ, to overwhelm you with God's love, to displace all the over overwhelm. And he did so in a way that showed her, no, this is who I am. And he did so in a way that was personal to her because he knew her. And in many remarkable ways, not just for her, but for us today, he says, I want more for you. So trust me, follow me. You might have doubts. You might get the answers wrong, but that's okay. I come to you. I give you my spirit. I equip you to follow me now and every day. Friends, as we go on this journey, I don't want you to miss any of these sermons throughout this sermon series of encounters that changed everything. So commit to every single week catching these, not just the teachings, but the entire service. And as we continue on throughout this service, let's pause and let's pray to Jesus, who isn't dead, who isn't just a, a figure in history, but who is alive and well, who has defeated death, and Scripture says is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us right now. Let's pray. God, we love you. We come before you, and we acknowledge that there are so many things about you that 
we can't wrap our minds around. And I thank you that you showed us in Mary that we don't always have to get the answers right. To the question, who do you say that I am? Who are you looking for? Even when we get it wrong, even when our view of you is diminished, is small, is in a box, you still come to us personally and you say our name. So God, I pray that whoever is listening to this service, wherever they are, no matter what they've gone through, no matter who they think you are, that you would speak their name, that it wouldn't be my voice, but it would be your voice through the power of the Holy Spirit that would cut through all the noise, cut through perhaps any fear, any guilt, any shame, cut through all of it. It would be a voice of love, a voice of invitation. And that I, like Mary, that we, like Mary, would respond to that love and say, teacher, that that encounter would change everything. In Jesus' name I pray, and we say together, Amen.